Thank you, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Um, as you make your way in your Bible or on your device to Romans 14, verses 5 through 12, we're just con- going to continue on through the book of Romans as we, uh, we do. So as you make your way there uh, in your Bible or on your device, I want to tell you about my Tuesday. And so Tuesday, uh, in the afternoon, I had a member uh, with a meeting. Uh, I had a meeting with a member of the, uh, of the church, and so we were up here at the office, and, uh, and so we finished our meeting. I walked him to the door, and then I went to go get some water, and as I was walking back, I noticed that this member was uh, still standing at the door. He hadn't walked to his car or anything like that, and he was just staring at something. And, uh, and so uh, I thought maybe he had uh, gotten locked out, left his keys in the building, something like that. So I went to open the door, and he said, did you know that there's a police officer chasing a boy in your parking lot? And I said, no, I didn't know that. I've been meeting with you this whole time. I've been missing this uh, great police chase. And, uh, and so I walked over, and sure enough, there is this female police officer, and, uh, and then these three uh, people who I later found out are school administrators, and they are trying to corral this, uh, this boy who had ran away from uh, Minshew Ele- Elementary. And so I walked up to the police officer. I introduced myself as a pastor here at the church and uh, asked her what was going on. And, uh, and she said that this boy had ran away from the school and that they were really worried that he was going to run into traffic. But they couldn't catch him. And I thought, <laughs> I can catch him. And, uh, and so I was fairly quick back in the day, and I'm still fairly arrogant. And so uh, I, said, uh, I said, I'm happy to catch him. I don't want to do anything, though, that's going to get me in some sort of legal trouble. And, uh, and she, uh, she said, okay, let's kind of think about this. And so uh, around this time, the boy goes into our playground. And, uh, and so he's there in the playground, which is kind of surrounded by a, a fence, and he climbs up on the, uh, the equipment there, and he just kind of stands up there. He's kind of like taunting us, like Goliath taunting David or something. And, uh, and so uh, this same time, the, the, right at the time that he's up there and he's taunting us, the police officer gets a call on, uh, on her uh, radio and says that she has to go to uh, another scene. And, uh, and so she's like, I got to leave. And, uh, and then around this same time, some of the, the, uh, the teachers that were there, they get a call saying that the boy's father is on his way to come and get the boy. And, uh, and so I said, how about this? How about as long as he stays in the playground, I just leave him alone. But if he comes out of the playground, then I will catch him. I said, how, how's that? And, uh, and so the police officer said, that's a great deal. So basically, I was deputized, and uh, I didn't get a taser or badge or anything like that, but I considered myself to be a fully functional law enforcement officer. And, uh, and so I just waited, and guess what? I really wanted this kid to run. Like, after a hard day of uh, studying uh, commentaries and reading theology and doing marriage counseling and all that kind of stuff, like, you want nothing more than to just tackle some disobedient kid. And so that was my hope, and so I just stood there, uh, right at the fence, and I'm just waiting for him. But he didn't run. He did throw some rocks, which meant everybody in the vicinity got to hear Carl's outside voice, as Carl uh, told him, you will not do that again. But that was about the extent of the, uh, the action. We just sat there and waited him out, and uh, eventually his dad came. And at this point, I'm thinking, oh man, this is going to be good. Because I know my dad, 
And if I would have ran away from school and disobeyed parents and disobeyed a police officer and disobeyed a deputy police officer slash pastor, then I was going to be in a whole lot of trouble whenever I got home, and I was not going to be walking right for quite a while. But for whatever reason, this dad was just patient and just asked him some questions and then eventually just kind of carried him uh, off. And so this is, uh, this is my Tuesday. This is what uh, I experienced. And so uh, I, I had another story lined up for this week, but then I, uh, this happened, and so I thought, I'll tell this story. And I actually had decided I'm going to tell the story before I even knew if there was some sort of point to it. And, uh, and then I realized there actually is a point, but we're going to have to get to that uh, later. So for now, uh, that'll just kind of be a, a teaser for you. For now, let's pray, and then we will dive into the text. I want to ask you just to pray for yourself. As we begin, you come in here with uh, feelings. You're, you're coming here distracted or disappointed or fearful or anxious or proud or whatever it might be. So would you ask the Lord just to uh, give you a heart that's undivided and a mind that's undivided? And then would you pray that for those around you as well, that we corporately, collectively might uh, have grace, that He would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in His Word. And then would you, uh, would you pray for me, that I would have boldness, but more than anything else, that I would be faithful uh, to God's Word, that I might not twist it or distort it. And so, Father, we do ask for your help, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might see the glory of your Son and the gospel, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love because you're a good Father and you give good gifts and you've given us your Scripture and your Spirit and your Son. And so we pray in his name. Amen. All right, let's look in verse 5 of Romans 14 which begins, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So we need to begin by kind of setting the scene and considering the context that we uh, explored last week. And in a lot of ways, what we're talking about this week is just a flat-out continuation of what we talked about last week. And so uh, you're going to, to see a lot of similarities between the two. And last week, the passage is going to concern these differences between weaker and stronger brothers. Not physically weaker or stronger brothers, but spiritually. And strength, what the, the kind of the measure of your strength in this context relates to your conscience in regards to what are called uh, uh, adiaphora issues. Adiaphora issues. What are adiaphora issues? We talked about this last week. There are things which are morally neutral, that God neither commands them nor restricts them. But he gives us in the church, he gives us his children, he gives us as Christians, he gives us freedom to partake in these things or freedom to abstain. We can partake within certain boundaries, but uh, we can also abstain if we choose to abstain. They are morally neutrals. That's adiaphora. So our text last week dealt uh, with, with the particular example of eating meat in particular, meat which had been probably sacrificed to idols. And so if you are someone uh, with a weak conscience, especially someone coming out of a Jewish context, this would have been offensive to you. And so that was the particular example that he, uh, that he gives. This week's text deals with celebrating certain days. Now, very few of us are really worried about meat sacrificed to idols, or very few of us are worried about which days we can and cannot celebrate which means that the explicit concerns of this particular passage, the particular wording of Romans 14, aren't our concerns today. 
because we find ourselves in a different context, a different culture. Most of our meat isn't sacrificed to idols. So our responsibility as we come to the text today is to first kind of understand the underlying original context and then the underlying principle that guides that context and then apply that, pull that into 21st century uh, American experience so that we can have some examples that do relate to us. Because if we just talk, if we spend all of our time just talking about eating meat and celebrating days, no one's really edified, no one's really encouraged, no one's really convicted or challenged on all of the issues that we have where we judge or despise others. So last week we, we listed out dozens of examples from our current context that might fit this principle, that might fit into this category that is known as adiaphora that uh, Paul's going to list out. And so current examples of this would be things like dancing or playing cards, dressing up for church, drinking alcohol, watching movies, etc. We gave an entire list. So go back and listen uh, to last week. All of these are adiaphora. Do them. Don't do them. It doesn't matter. Are there biblical boundaries and wisdom to take into account? Of course there are. Are there ways that you might be excessive in this? Of course. But the acts in and of themselves aren't uh, sinful. And again, the particular first century example of last week's text was eating meat, especially meat that was ceremonially unclean through being offered to idols. And since last week's considers what you might eat at a feast, this week's text is going to deal with what might be a feast or a festival in and of itself. Paul says that one person esteems one day as distinct, while another views all as alike. So what is he talking about? I don't know. Uh, raise your hand if you're from Texas. Right? You just live here now. But okay, if you're actually from Texas, then some of you know that ye- uh, yesterday was Texas Independence Day, all right? And uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, get maybe an amen or something like that. So yesterday was Texas Independence Day, and so Tim uh, tweeted out this picture in honor of uh, Texas Independence Day. That's me wearing a cowboy hat, riding a unicorn through Big Bend National Park. Nothing is more Texan than me wearing that outfit, uh, riding a unicorn through Big Bend National Park. Uh, Today is National uh, If Pets Had Thumbs Day. These kind of things are not what this text is talking about when it talks about days. If you celebrate, celebrate National If Pets Had Thumbs Day, I think we have every right to judge you. All right? That's not the kind of days that he's talking about here. What is he talking about? Well, from a first century Jewish perspective, what would immediately come to mind as Paul starts uh, talking about these distinct days would be things like Passover or Pentecost or even the Sabbath. So what I want to do is I want to consider the Sabbath in particular because if we can see how this principle applies to this particular case, then we can see how it applies in, uh, in general. And so here's the big picture, that Christians are no longer under the Sabbath. Christians are no longer under the Sabbath. If you were a first century Jew, what I just said, even if you're a first century Jewish Christian, what I just said would have been extremely offensive to you. After all, Sabbath was part of the Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? It's the Ten Commandments. It's one of the big ones. One of the ones that you put on courthouses and all of those kinds of things. One of the things that you memorized as a kid. This is one of the the, the biggest commands of the Old Testament. It's even rooted in creation itself. 
It was the mark of the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. One of the things that set them apart as an ethnic people, as an elect nation. Imagine as you can kind of identify a hipster by his glasses and beards. As you can identify or recognize a millennial by his safe spaces. As you can recognize a, a, a boomer by their disdain of millennials. So you could recognize... A first, some, some of you got that. So you can recognize a first century Jew by three things in particular. The first one being circumcision, which Paul has already dealt with extensively in earlier chapters of the book. The second one being a distinct diet, which we talked about last week with meat sacrifice to idols. And the third one is the Sabbath. This is rooted in their identity. This was uh, how they understand who they are because the Sabbath was so tethered to Jewish identity. If you want to fully understand what he's saying here, the implications of this text, then you need to remember what we've talked about a number of times uh, here at Parkway, both in sermons and in theological equipping classes, about how Christians relate to the Mosaic Law. You can't fully grasp what Paul says in chapter 14 without understanding what he's already said in chapters 2 through 4. In other words, he's already laid a foundation in chapters 2 through 4 that he's then building the house of this theology of chapter 14. And what we've saw, seen in earlier chapters is that Christ has fulfilled the law in its entirety such that we are no longer under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the law to love God and love others, but we are no longer under the particular provisions and jurisdiction of the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments that were given to Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. This is why Christians can eat pork today. This is why Christians can shave their beards today, even though Leviticus explicitly said that you cannot eat pork and you cannot shave your beards. This is why Christians can do that today. By the way, next time Zach or Tim make fun of us for having shaven faces, just remind him that is a sign of weakness, according to Romans 14, to not. So the point of all of this is that we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant or law. And if we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant or law, then we're no longer under the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. As we're no longer under the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision, so we are no longer under the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, which is the Sabbath, which means that Christians, whether you are ethnically Jewish or ethnically Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you are no longer bound to celebrate Mosaic festivals or even the Sabbath. This isn't something that we just get from Romans 14. Paul says it elsewhere, Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that, were, uh, that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So in the context of Galatians, Paul isn't uh, concerned particularly with the, whether you observe a day or not, but rather the idea that the observance of a particular day or season or month or feast or festival or whatever it is is a mark of righteousness or even a mark of sanctification. Remember from last week what we talked about is the problem with Adiaphora issues is not whether you partake or not. The problem is, 
rather when you command what God hasn't commanded or what you, when you restrict what God has not restricted. When you judge or despise others in regards to morally neutral things. Colossians 2, 16 through 17, he says a similar thing. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, as we saw last week, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In the Old Testament, if you did not celebrate the Sabbath, were you judged? Absolutely, you would get stoned. You would get stoned to death. The people of Israel would come around you and pummel you to death with stones as a judgment. It was a big deal to not celebrate the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It was a capital offense. And yet in the New Testament, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in this matter. This is adiaphora. Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath so that we're no longer under that particular law. So celebrate the Sabbath. Don't celebrate the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. Now, does that mean that we don't rest? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. In this way, the Sabbath is kind of a lot like, kind of a lot like is not a great way to say it. It's a lot like the tithe, that Christians are no longer under the tithe, which is the word that just means tenth. Again, that was a particular command of the Mosaic law, whereas the New Testament doesn't specify a certain percentage of giving to be faithful. So for some of you, that might be 10%. For for others of you, that might be 5% or even 1%. For others of you with your Scrooge McDuck vault full of coins, that might be 90% or something like that. The Bible is not going to give us a particular uh, legal sort of formula for us. Likewise, with the Sabbath, we're required to rest, but no longer given this legal formula of resting on a particular day in a particular way. So if you want to rest, if you want to celebrate the Sabbath, or you want to celebrate rest on a Saturday, the original Sabbath, then go for it. If you want to do it on Sunday, go for it. If you have a work schedule that allows you to do it on a Friday, go for it. If you want to uh, take one day out of seven to rest, then go for it. But you're not sinning if you work eight days in a row and you take one day out of nine. Now, maybe you're watching seven days in a row or, or you're working seven days in a row because of fear or greed or pride or maybe in doing so you neglect your family or something like that. But then the sin isn't that you violated the Sabbath because you're no, no longer under the law of the Sabbath. The sin is pride or greed or fear or neglect of family or whatever it might be. Now look at this last phrase in the text. It says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, what we talked about last week, there is this importance for personal conscience, but bear in mind the context of what we're talking about. This only applies to adiaphora issues. This only applies to morally neutral issues. It does not matter at all if you are fully convinced that sleeping with your girlfriend is a good thing. It does not matter at all if you're fully convinced that it's acceptable for you to get drunk. It does not matter at all if you're fully convinced that you can use these improper words. We're only talking about these morally neutral issues. Scripture always trumps your conscience. Scripture always trumps your conscience. Conscience, your conscience only gets a vote when it comes to things which are morally neutral, things which God has not uh, already clearly passed judgment on. And the rest of our passage this morning is basically just going to be an explanation of and a rationale for this type of freedom when it comes to these sorts of morally neutral issues. So let's keep going in verse 6. 
He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So last week we saw that those who restrict what the Bible doesn't restrict or command what the Bible doesn't command are called weak. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll continue to see Scripture confront and challenge both the weak and the strong. There's particular things that he tells the weak. There's particular things that he tells uh, the strong. So let's clarify something that might be uh, easily misunderstood. You might misunderstand it from what Zach talked about last week or from what I'm talking about this week. And it isn't that Paul is saying that the person who eats meat or the person who in our context drinks alcohol or the people who play cards, it's not that that person is necessarily strong or the person who abstains is necessarily weak. The issue isn't whether or not you partake but whether or not you believe you have freedom to do so or not. You can abstain from eating meat and still have a strong conscience if you don't believe that eating meat is inherently sinful or wrong and abstaining inherently better. What makes you weak isn't the fact that you don't eat meat, although I really want to insert like a, uh, a joke about uh, physically weak vegetarians, but I won't. What makes you weak isn't the fact that you don't eat Meat, what makes you weak is when your conscience is burdened, when this is a crutch, when you don't feel as though you have the freedom that you actually have in Christ. That's the context. So it's not that the strong do something and the weak don't do something necessarily. It's that the strong recognize I have freedom in Christ while the weak are reliant upon these crutches. So that's the context here. So it doesn't uh, make you weak to say that you won't or you don't do something which is morally neutral. That's not weakness. What makes you weak is when you say that you can't or that you must do that particular thing. That is weakness. That's a sign that your conscience and your faith aren't strong enough, so you need a crutch, a crutch in the form of some sort of rule or regulation. So what matters isn't whether you eat or whether you drink or not. It's the posture of the heart and submission to Christ. And if you're submitted to Christ, in the context here, you give thanks. So you're submitted to His Word. And therefore, you're committed to maintaining its authority and sufficiency. We talked about this last week, that it's okay to eat meat. It's also okay to not eat meat. But it's not okay to tell people that they have to or that they can't eat meat. It's okay to celebrate Sabbath. It's okay to not celebrate Sabbath. It's not okay to tell people that they have to celebrate the Sabbath or that they can't celebrate the Sabbath. Or in our 21st century, post-prohibition American uh, context, we should uh, admit that it's okay to drink alcohol. If you're of the right age and within uh, certain boundaries, not getting drunk and all of those sorts of things, it's okay to not drink alcohol. It's not okay to tell people that they have to drink alcohol or that they can never drink alcohol. Why does it matter? What's the big deal with all of this? We're talking about meat and vegetables and days. They seem like such minor, superficial, trivial things. So let me give you a couple of reasons that this passage is important and relevant and pertinent for us. Two reasons in particular. First, because of justification by faith. That's the first thing, justification by faith, that we are justified, that is declared righteous by grace alone through faith alone not through faith plus diet and days. We're not justified by the food that we eat. We're not justified by the festivals that we keep. We are justified by faith and faith alone. That's the first reason. To judge or despise another believer on these issues undercuts 
Justification by faith. Second reason is the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the reason that this is so important. I don't care if you eat meat. I don't care if you drink alcohol. I don't care if you celebrate a Sabbath or not. I don't care if you give a tithe or not. I care that you not demean the Bible. I care that you not deny the Word of God, its authority and sufficiency. I care that you not add to Scripture or take away from Scripture. That's what's at stake in this. Church, do you realize how serious this is? Paul is saying that the church is big enough for people with weak consciences and strong consciences. The church is big enough for people who eat and those who abstain from eating. But there is no room for adding to or subtracting from the Word of God. So where we find our hearts drifting toward one or the other, that is a place that we're called to faith and repentance. So don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get lost in this uh, discussion of diet and days and these sorts of things and miss the bigger point, which is uh, justification and God's judgment and the unity of the church and the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's keep going. Verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That took a really strange turn, if you're following along in the context. We're talking about Sabbath and eating vegetables, and all of a sudden we're talking about death. For some of you, that's a pretty natural transition from vegetables to death. Your diet is like French fries and Fruit Loops or something. That's your only exposure to fruits and vegetables. But uh, this reference to death here is really interesting. What Paul is doing here, he's using this language of life and death to show sort of the spectrum of existence in order to show the totality of Christ's authority. That if Christ is Lord even over death, how much more is He Lord over decisions like diets and days or any other adiaphora issue. Let me summarize these few verses uh, here, verses uh, 7 through 9. The idea here is Christ lived, and Christ died, and Christ lives again. And the reason that He did that is in order that He might have authority over all things and all people. And therefore, by implication, there is no aspect of our lives which is not subsumed under His authority, including our consciences. In other words, there's only one Lord of the conscience. That's why I said it doesn't matter if your conscience is affected or not. If you're fully convinced in your own mind that you can do this issue of sin, your conscience is always in submission to Christ and His Word. So we shouldn't fear the judgment or the spite of others who disagree with our conscience on these types of morally neutral matters. And we shouldn't enforce our consciences on others as we'll see in the next section in verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or, why, or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Here's where we get to one of the least understood uh, issues in sort of Americanized Christianity. And that is the idea of judgment. To judge or not to judge. Don't judge me, bro, is sort of the cliched uh, mantra uh, of our society. 
I said this is one of the least understood topics because anytime you criticize someone, you'll hear someone say, judge not, lest you be judged, as if that's sort of a trump card. That's the ultimate sort of shield against any sort of reproach or any sort of criticism you might level at them. Well, the problem with viewing that, that particular idea, judge not lest you be judged, with some sort of all-encompassing force field to keep you from any sort of critique or rebuke is that the Bible absolutely and explicitly commands us to judge each other in certain contexts. 1 Corinthians 5.12, look at this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul says that uh, you're not to judge those outside of the church. We don't judge the lost. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You are to judge those inside the church. So 1 Corinthians 5 says to judge our brothers and sisters. But Romans 14 has just said not to judge our brothers and sisters. So what do we do? Do we just chalk that up as some sort of contradiction? Some sort of uh, inconsistency that we can't really get to the bottom of? Do we just simply live out that uh, inconsistency or take it on a case-by-case? Sometimes I'm going to judge, sometimes I'm not going to judge. No, that's not the way that we interpret Scripture. It's actually really easy in the context to figure out what Paul means, that there is a fundamental distinction between what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 5 and what he's saying in Romans 14. That distinction is that in 1 Corinthians 5 and in other passages that command us to judge each other, the context is explicit sin. In such cases, we are to pass judgment. But remember, in Romans 14, we're talking about issues that are considered adiaphora. There's no explicit command or prohibition, so we're not to judge. So imagine that you're out and, uh, and you see me and I am with someone that's other than Casey, uh, some woman other than my wife, and, uh, and I'm holding hands with her and all of those kind of things. You are to judge me in that particular case. If I'm looking at pornography, you are to judge me in that particular case. If I get drunk and chase down some kid and punch him in the throat, you are to judge me in that particular case. And if you're doing any of these sorts of things, then the church is going to judge you. God has told us to judge you for that. That's where church discipline comes in if you persist in this obvious unrepentant sin. But Paul says we can't judge these morally uh, neutral issues like diet and days and dancing and playing a friendly game of poker or whatever it might be. Are there boundaries of wisdom? Absolutely there are. Are there sinful excesses? Absolutely there are. But the fact that someone can fall into gluttony doesn't mean that we simply prohibit all food. The fact that some can uh, fall into drunkenness doesn't mean that we prohibit all alcohol. The fact that some can uh, uh, fall into all kinds of sexual immorality doesn't mean that we prohibit all sex. Each of those can be used for good or for evil. So we judge the abuse, but not the proper use. In other words, judge those things that God has already judged, but don't judge what He hasn't. Which means that we have a responsibility in the church to actually know what He has judged. We have a responsibility to study Scripture, to glean from it and see what it actually says about things that we think are sinful or unwise. And sometimes as we go to Scripture, our convictions are upheld. And sometimes when we go to Scripture, we realize, I've been judging this thing that I shouldn't judge, that this is actually a morally neutral issue and not an issue of sin as I thought it might be. So if any of the Adiaphora examples that we might bring up 
uh, last week or this week or the next couple of weeks, if any of those things uh, that have been brought up makes you uncomfortable, maybe that's God's grace to you to show you an area of your life where you're walking with a limp that He wants to strengthen. And so the principle of this passage is twofold. The first one, to not judge what God has judged. We talked about that. That's the word of the week. But to the strong, he gives this other admonition, and that is, don't despise your weaker brother. Don't look down upon, don't mock, don't laugh at the crutches of the weaker conscience whose faith needs some help from non-binding traditions. Don't despise the weaker brother because any strength that you may have is entirely a gift of God's grace, so you have nothing in which to boast. You have no ground upon which to look down at your brothers and sisters. Now look at this final reference to God's judgment here. Way back in chapter 12, we talked about retaliation and vengeance and wrath. And we talked about the fact that those things aren't wrong. Vengeance is not a bad thing. For you to take vengeance is a bad thing. Vengeance belongs to God. Wrath is not a bad thing. But for you to act out of wrath is a bad thing. But for God, it's a good thing. The problem is when we take upon ourselves what belongs to God. Vengeance belongs to God, so we don't have the right to exercise vengeance. Likewise with judgment. Judgment isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's a bad thing when we attempt to usurp God's judgment. When we push Him off of His little uh, throne, I don't know why I said little there, when we push Him off His throne and we take His robe from Him and we take His gavel from Him and we go up there and we bang that gavel And we say, I have something to say. I want to pronounce judgment on this thing of which we are uninformed. That's the problem. That judgment belongs to God, so we don't have a right to judge that which He hasn't already judged. We talked about it before. He has passed judgment on issues of actual sin. So we are to judge in those cases, but not when it comes to these morally neutral audiophora issues. And the reason that we can refrain from passing judgment in these cases is because God will Judge. So what I want to do is I want to go back to this opening story, this opening illustration, because I think that can help us to see uh, what this looks like in, uh, in practice. So bear in mind the story. There's a boy in the playground. I told him I wouldn't come out in after him as long as he stayed in there. And then I mumbled, but I hope you come out. But uh, I, I said, if he stays on the premises, uh, that I wouldn't do anything. So I just stood there and I waited. But the reason that we made this deal The reason that I made this deal with the the, the police officer before she deputized me is that I could hold out and not take any action whatsoever because we knew that his dad was coming. What does this have to do with our text? It's a good question. Imagine for a second that that boy and I are both Christians and that this playground represents these morally neutral adiaphora issues. These are these morally neutral things that are neither commanded nor condemned. You have freedom to do them. You have freedom also to not do them. You have freedom to partake. You have freedom to abstain. Well, I'm not coming after the boy as long as he stays in those boundaries. Likewise, that's what God commands of the church. But once you get away from the audiophora issues, there is no freedom. If that boy hops that fence and begins to run, he's getting tackled. That's the case of explicit sin. We're not to judge our brothers on morally neutral issues, but we are absolutely commanded to judge when it comes to actual sins. As long as you're in this audiophora playground, you're safe. But if you leave that audiophora playground and run off into Sin Street, 
you're going to get tackled. The church is commanded to tackle you for your good and for God's glory. As long as this boy stayed in the playground, I could patiently wait that boy out because his dad was coming. And likewise, ultimate judgment is coming from our heavenly Father. In essence, God tells His church to neither judge nor despise brothers in the Adiophora playground because He's coming. And when He comes, He will judge. Not merely the actions, but the motivations and everything else so we don't have to worry about it in the meantime. But until then, there are two dangers for us to avoid. And both of these dangers, honestly, they saturate the evangelical church in America. And I would imagine that every one of us in this room struggles, at least to some degree, with both of these on various issues. If we're honest with ourselves, I know that's asking a lot for us here at church to be honest with ourselves, but I think every one of us in this room would have to admit that we tend to judge certain things that God hasn't actually judged. We tend to have our little peccadilloes, these little areas that even though it might be morally neutral, we feel uncomfortable and so we want to push that uncomfortability on someone else. We want to say, because you can abuse this, therefore you can't use it. There are these areas where we tend to judge what God hasn't judged, but there's also these other areas where we refuse to judge what God has judged. Both are sin. Both attack the the integrity, the authority, the sufficiency of God's Word. Some of you would never chase that kid down. Would never tackle that kid. If he leapt the fence, began to run away, ran off into oncoming traffic, and you saw an 18-wheeler plowing down at him, you would not do anything at all. You'd say things like, I'm just going to love him. I'm just going to give him grace when you're talking about a fellow believer who's looking at pornography or sleeping with his girlfriend or whatever it is. That's not grace. It isn't grace to allow a kid to run into the street to his uh, ultimate death. Neither is it grace to allow a brother or sister to live in sin. In such cases, we're to tackle our brother or sister before they get into the street. The second danger is what is explicitly forbidden in our passage this morning. Some of you would be so quick, you're like me, you'd be so quick to chase that kid down. In fact, you're just hoping that the kid comes out of the, uh, the playground so that you can get him. And you get impatient with waiting, and so you run in there and you climb up on the playset and you grab that kid by the neck and you drag him down. You're more than willing to go into that playground. Nothing would make you happier. And Christians do that all the time. They make up rules that sound right. They sound wise. But they aren't. They're just like the Pharisees building this wall around the law. God has given a law, and then you want to build this other law because we don't want to get close to the edge. Someone might potentially fall off the cliff. So you say you can't eat meat. You have to celebrate Sabbath or festivals or feasts. You have to dress up for church. Some of you swing the pendulum the other way, so you can't dress up for church. You're a sellout if you do. You can't dance. You can't watch movies. You can't drink. And on and on we could go. Fifty years from now, should uh, Christ tarry, we'll have an entirely new list of different ways that uh, the church adds to the commandments of Scripture. This is the danger of our text this morning, that we would judge or despise others for things unworthy of our judgment and disdain. The fact that this kid's father was coming changed everything. I could wait him out. I knew that it wasn't going to be days upon days upon days of him in there. I knew the dad was coming. Likewise with God's judgment. One day, 
every one of us who love and trust Jesus will stand before the judgment seat of God and give, give an account. Which means that until then, we should be a people marked by love, a people marked by patience, a people marked by humility, a people marked by unity and grace. Let's pray while the men come forward for communion. Father, I thank you for uh, your word this morning. I thank you for the gift that you give us of freedom in Christ. And just confess in my own life, there are places where I am weak. There are places where I uh, feel as though I need crutches, things that you haven't actually prohibited that I think you have, or things that you haven't actually commanded that I think you have. And there's other areas uh, in my life where I'm strong, and I thank you that uh, any strength that I have is a gift of your grace. And I realize that uh, this church is full of strong and weak on various issues. And yet you have called us to unity and love and mutual tolerance and acceptance. And so I pray that you would do what is uh, physically impossible for us, which is to unify us. Lord, that this might be a church that's big enough for various consciences. So Lord, we're grateful for your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to live in submission to it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.